how to repair relationships with your family and your entire ancestral line, using magic to create your reality, plant medicine for healing and optimal living, and how to prepare for an uncertain future are just some of the topics I cover in today's show with my guest, John Sonne. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast for men who are ready to lead their most expansive and courageous lives. Thank you for joining us on this adventure where we'll be questioning old paradigms and architecting new ways to live, laugh, and love. I'm Gareth Pickery. And I'm Matt Dazi. We believe that your story could contain the key that unlocks someone else's healing. So we connect with humans from all walks of life as they share their journeys from chaos to courage. So if you're ready to experience the ease and flow that come from living an expansive and well-crafted life, you're in the right place. This is the Call to Courage podcast. This is episode 13 of the Call to Courage podcast. I'm Gareth. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I would like to share a couple of points of housekeeping. And... After completing 12 episodes of season one of the Call to Courage podcast, we took some time to reflect on 12 episodes and realized that having taken the advice of our podcast mentor who supported us to set up our podcast, one of the areas that he suggested we follow was decide on a frequency, how often we're going to create a podcast and stick to that so that listeners of the podcast are able to consume that podcast at the agreed frequency. Filled with enthusiasm of a new project, we decided to do a weekly podcast only to completely underestimate exactly how much is required to put out a weekly podcast episode, especially if you haven't taken all of the time to set up the systems and procedures required to script, interview, produce, post-produce, distribute, and promote a weekly show. And so we found ourselves running from one week to the next putting out our show, and no sooner had we put out episode three, it was almost Thursday, ready to put out episode four, and the weeks rolled around so quickly that we didn't have much time to focus on post-production or promotion of the episodes that we were creating. And for me, that was akin to having a factory where you create widgets, and every Thursday you create a widget, and you spend no time promoting or taking the time to sell that widget only to create another one the following week. And so we have decided to let go of the idea that this needs to be a weekly creation. We're also letting go of the idea of there being seasons. And so episode 13 is just going to flow from here into episode 14 and 15 thereafter. And there's not going to be a defined frequency as to when this podcast is going to come out. And that feels like it's given us a huge amount of breathing room to be able to put the life force and energy we want into the show and to have the opportunity to promote it and to really engage with the guests, not only when they come onto the show, but also to be able to support them to promote it to their network once they have been a guest on the show. So that feels like a huge sigh of relief. It's been compounded by the time we've taken to reflect on what we did well in season one and install a team that's going to help us with development, post-production, as well as the promotion of each individual episode from episode 13 onwards. This episode today with John Sane and all future episodes is also going to have a video version of the podcast. And 
that feels like a really exciting component because I know that I consume some content interview style on YouTube and we'll include a link to today's YouTube version of the show in the show notes for the podcast. And you'll see that as this is the first version of us doing the video version of the podcast, we make a couple of mistakes. I'm getting used to some of the tech and where I was chatting to John and not necessarily looking directly at the camera and my notes. It was a little bit rough, but um, that's the nature of a creation like this. And uh, that's gonna get smoothed out in the future. All right, one final piece of housekeeping before we jump into the show. Last month, we created and completed our first premium men's circle called the King's Circle. This is a monthly circle for men to be able to come together and through a consciously created space, bring men together to be able to drop in and share and connect with one another with whatever's happening in your life at the moment. Over the last eight years, since I've been on my healing journey and my personal development path, being inside created spaces like men's circles or going on a men's retreat have been by far the most healing parts of my journey. And a lot of that healing has to do with being able to be seen and be received. That means sharing whatever's alive for me and whatever my journey and my path has looked like, and to be able to be received openly and without judgment. And when that happens, there's a huge amount of healing that comes from just being able to get that particular story off my chest. And the same is true for other men. When I sit in a circle and I hear somebody else sharing their journey and they're sitting with the same problems that I'm sitting with, it feels hugely, hugely healing. And so behind that is the reason that I'm creating the Call to Courage podcast as well as uniting the Father's Sons, Brothers tribe. And so if you'd like to join us for free to check out the King's Circle, it happens once a month. You can get a free ticket at calltocourage.live and it would be great to see you in our next upcoming Men's Circle. My guest today is John Sane. He is a best-selling author. He's a future strategist and a keynote speaker. He has an amazing ability to create and he writes a new book every single year. In this episode, we discuss a huge range of topics, ranging from how to become our best future selves, which touches on his latest book called Who Do We Become? We talk about his journey with relation to healing his connection with his father and repairing his entire ancestral line. We talk about toxic masculinity and how John has been able to notice that pattern in his life and improve it into a place where he's really been able to connect with some powerful male mentors in his life where he never had that in his life in the past. We also talk about health, diet, and veganism, and much, much more. I think that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Call to Courage podcast. I'm Gareth Pickering. And my guest today is John Sane. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here with you. Great to have you here. It's been, um, it's kind of been a long time coming. We were chatting off air about our connections and uh, our lives in Johannesburg, which feels like for me a lifetime ago, and I'm sure it does for you too. <laughs> back I, in South Africa. Of, yeah, when I think of myself in Johannesburg, I... All I feel for that guy is a lot of empathy and love, you know, as it was a very hard place to live because it forced you not to be yourself. It really did force you to play out of uh, 
almost like a character you needed to be with a lot of armor, you know, and uh, I feel a lot of empathy. Whenever I see pictures of myself back then, I just, you know, I love him and, and I feel bad for him that he had to go through that. So lucky us that we escaped. Lucky us. I really I resonate with that. What, what is that? Why, why is that like that? I feel the same. I feel a very similar version of myself there that was trying to be somebody else. And is it culture? Is it programming? Is it me? I think it's uh, the city itself requires you to play a certain role and you need to adopt that role to become successful. And many times that role isn't actually who we are. It's just the role we're playing. I think that's one, one aspect of it. I do think that consciousness was much lower back then. So access to our true selves was almost not as accessible as it is now. I think consciousness has really grown a lot uh, and access to it has grown a lot. And then thirdly, I think also age, you know, Gareth, I think we were in our 20s back then. And I think many people in their 20s are playing roles um, of who they think they need to be. But I think Joburg definitely gives you this level of sort of armor. I call it armor, you know, and the armor is muscles, tattoos, sports cars, watches, Montblanc pens, you know, that sort of world. Money. And, uh, and money. And then, you know, it is such a burden to live that lifestyle. You know, it's such a burden. And, and I think... Since then, it's been, and I guess the same for you, it's been a, a process of uh, untethering ourselves from as much as possible. And so it's a heavy life being there, you know. It's still like that. Whenever I go back there, it's still a heavy life. People have to play that role. Can you, you think you can find peace there? Or is, like, is, that, is that just a collective agreement with the space, with, with Johannesburg as a place? Because I, I resonate with that as well, and I... I feel some anxiety when I think about going back there, probably because of the version I was when I was there. <laughs> Look, I, I obviously think you can find peace. Obviously, I don't think that's I don't think that's impossible. But why would if you do find peace, why would you want? I don't know. I, I always wonder like why would you want to be there? There's so many more amazing places in the world to be, and also you know that the, overall South Africa still hasn't really healed from all the trauma it's been through. And there's a lot of underlying anger, a lot of underlying violence, uh, corruption. So it's a very young, culturally and societally immature space, you know. And it's taken us a long time to look sort of defrag that immaturity. You know, when, when you go overseas, you realize there's so much levels of elegance and maturity that we never had. It's almost like, you know, there's so much fighting and like so much like young energy that was here. And I think, think, I think it's still around, you know. So... I, I, I think it's all of the above, you know, I don't think it's one thing or the other. And I th definitely think you can find peace, but I guess when you find peace, then you can go and live somewhere else, you know, go and enjoy some other options in the world. Mm. Maybe take us back through uh, like a version of yourself. Give us a bit of your backstory, explaining your, your story through the lens of the roles that you've played as a father and son and brother. If you've played any of those roles, like, Give us a bit of a story of, of who John Sane is through those three lenses. Well, I mean, well, I've never been asked that question before, so well done for that. Um, I played a father to a dog. Uh, his name was Heike Superdog Sane. Um, and since having him in my life, my relationship with the animal kingdom has changed phenomenally. Uh, I realized the level of intelligence and absolute awareness that animals do have. And it's really totally changed my relationship with, I've become a dog advocate, all my charity work, all my, all my giving back is with dogs now. And in fact, I'm in Cape Town right now. And I specifically get a hotel close to Bean. And Bean is my old neighbor's dog who I've become really good friends with. And Bean and I go for walks twice a day. And I, I, I plan my hotel stays around my access to Bean. 
And so my, my relationship with Heike um, changed everything for me. Also, he came into my life just before I got divorced. And, you know, that, that level of sort of like just magic that he did arrive and was with me through that divorce. And as my career started taking off and I had to start traveling more and more, he passed away. You know, I, I still feel emotional about it, to be honest. And so he almost released me, mm. you know, anyways. Mm -hmm. I also realized I was a Jewish mother. And I mean by that, uh, I could not stop feeding him, loving him, worrying about him. I was like, I just couldn't do enough for him. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Iranian mothers, you know, Italian mothers. I, I, I am an Italian mother <laughs> when it comes to fathering. So, and happy to be so. So great question. Mm. Thank you. Um, mm. Being a son, such a great question. Just uh, four weeks ago, I think eight weeks ago, maybe I decided to go see my dad for the very first time after 20 odd years. I hadn't spoken you to hadn't him, seen him in 20 years. No, I disconnected from him. He was, and he still is a, a person who hasn't understood the process of involvement. And I actually think that age group of men, and in fact, some women in that age group, just don't have the software to evolve to a place of taking responsibility, becoming conscious of what's going on around them. And you know, my dad's getting old and I was just tired of like just being angry with him. And I've done extensive amounts of family constellation, teacher plants, meditation. And I've just got in my place, got myself to a place where I needed to go and heal that relationship. And, you know, uh, eight weeks ago, I went, I went to go and heal it. And it was fantastic. He hasn't changed 1%. He still is confused at why people are so angry with him because he's just <laughs> unconscious of what has happened in his life. Um, has five boys around the world, has never played a father figure to any of them, and is still confused at why people are upset with him. So. Strange guy, um, but in the process of loving him, holding him, massaging him, being there for him, looking after him for the week I was with him, wonderful, you know, just to be there and play that role with him. And what really inspired me was an interview with Tom Cruise. Um, I'm a big fan of Tom Cruise, and uh, he's, he also had a tumultuous relationship with his dad. And um, his dad requested to see him on his deathbed, and Tom Cruise decided to go with two rules. The first rule was, I'm not going to talk about the past. It's irrelevant. And two, I'm not going as your son. I'm coming to you as a man who's seeing another man who's made some mistakes in his life. And to be able to arrive at that sort of relationship without the burden of expectation really released me of any angst or any expectation around it. And so I've just healed my dad relationship. And you know what I was telling my, my very good friend the other day? is for the longest time I attracted abusive alpha males into my life. Uh, based, and we were talking off air about my restaurant brand. And when you've got a tumultuous relationship with your dad and think that all men in the world subconsciously are like this because that is your idea of an alpha male is the abusive alpha male your dad was. And so I kept attracting these abusive alpha males into my life continuously. Whether I was in high school, nightclubbing, bouncers were wanting to beat me up, business, I had all these guys being abusive. And, and now that I've made peace with my dad and, and, and really the journey began seven, eight years ago, but now that I've really made peace, I've almost got very loving mentors all of a sudden arriving all around me because of my perspective of what alpha males could be, should be and releasing them of that burden of perfection in many ways. And so my, my reflection point of alpha males has drastically changed just in the last sort of eight weeks and I've just become so aware of it. It's been the most amazing ex experience. You know? And then as a brother 
had a tumultuous relationship with my brother for my whole life, in fact, and uh, didn't speak to him for years, for four years, and um, fixed that relationship about six months ago. So I've been on a mission to fix every single relationship in my life and gotten myself to a point where, and as Dr. Joe Dispenza actually has helped me with the theory and practice of it, where he says, never try and forgive anybody. It doesn't work. Elevate your consciousness. And when you look at that person again, you only see them empathetic because the hook they had on you was only based on the vibration you were at. So you can't actually fix anything from the same vibration. You have to increase vibration and then everything you look at doesn't have the hooks in you anymore. So the practice is elevate and align and everything else sorts itself out once you're able to do that. So yes, father, brother, son, very proud in all of them. And I've made massive strides in the last two months for all of them. Amazing. What is the process of sitting down with your dad? Like, did you have an agreement frame of what you wanted to talk about? How did you, how did you go through that process to, to do the repair work that you needed to? Or was it really just something you needed to do within yourself? Well, family constellations helped me a lot. Um, when we did family constellations around my family lineage, it became clear that my dad didn't get along with his dad. And neither did his dad get along with his dad. And it seems to be a paternal lineage issue that no dad and son got along, actually. And so we had to fix that. And and there was a whole process of fixing that. And once we released that sort of subconscious patterning, it became obvious for me to want to go and heal it. So, and it was just like a a bunch of different synchronicities that got me to become like even the Tom Cruise interview. I mean, I've watched three Tom Cruise interviews in my life. And this piece of that interview just hit me like a 10 ton brick truck. And I was like, whoa, okay, that's exactly the tool set I actually need to be going in with. And, you know, the very minute I saw him, I hugged him and held him and loved him and cared for him. You know, I didn't, there was zero need for me to bear any grudge against him, even though he hasn't changed, even though he thinks he's done nothing wrong. And it's been a, it's been 40 years of abuse. And, and I think it's just that age group and it's making peace with, with that software and that age group and releasing it, you know, and, and also I want to be a dad as well, you know, and, 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 you know, how they say once you, the way you leave one relationship is how you arrive in the other one. So I also want to be able to, to, to bring peace into my life. And it was important to go through that process. Can you share what Family Constellations is, like as a framework for people that may not have heard of what Family Constellation is? Absolute pleasure. Before I even start, let me just say, after you've done it, it's still weird. So let me get going with it because whether you've done it or not, it's still weird. And I've done 40 sessions and it's still weird, but here it is. About 35 years ago or so, a Austrian-Swiss psychotherapist came to South Africa to try and help the Zulu nation deal with their trauma through a process of role-playing. And what happened was they bumped into this sort of scenario that allows role-playing to take on the consciousness of the people that you're trying to work with and heal. And so what happens is you see a facilitator privately one or two, three times, and in in those private sessions, it becomes clear the sort of blockages that you have with your lineage, your family, your mother, your cousin, your dad, whatever it may be. And so once a month, the facilitator I see, she has sessions, sessions once a month, and you go into a room with 10 strangers, and all 10 strangers have seen the facilitator privately. There's one hot seat, as they call it, and one at a time you go and sit in the hot seat, and Alida, her name is Alida, and she turns to the person sitting in the hot seat and says, oh, well, you know, John, we know what we're working on here. 
So let's go and call up yourself, your dad, your father, your grandfather, whatever the case may be. And you go up and like, look, you don't know anybody in this room. Nobody in this room knows you. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. And that's really key because an leader never tells the story in front of the people so that nobody's tainted by the story and scenario that's been created. And then what so happens- she tells you your story you, as you know it in the hot seat. She doesn't say it to anybody in the room. So nobody in the room knows your story. Nobody knows what you're working okay. on. She's just the characters yeah. that are coming up are the characters that are needed to come and role play the process of healing. And so you go up and you ask specific people to play you, your dad, whoever the roles are, and you put them into the middle and you sit back down in the hot seat. And the strangest, most amazing thing happens is that these people start taking on the characteristics of your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, whoever it may be, even to the point of them holding their hands in the same way your mother does. Like the way they grasp, the facial expressions. And, you know, I'll give you two, two examples. I played a six-year-old version of a French guy. I'd never met him before. I've never seen him since that ceremony, that session. And um, the, a leader asked me to play, or he came to ask me to play him at six years old. And I went on to the middle of the room and I started sobbing uncontrollably, sobbing and sobbing. And this is going from a very normal mood to breaking down and sobbing. I mean, it, it takes a lot. You know, I'm not an actor in any way. I had no idea, but his father left him when he was six. And he had to deal with that level of trauma. And there's, firstly, I had no idea. And secondly, I'm, not a, I'm a crier, but not like that for no reason. You know what I mean? And so it was a very healing process for me because it got me also to release many things about my dad. But for him, he was also crying and there was, there was a whole process around that. Now, you also can get... Play, you can ask to get played roles that you have no idea what role you're actually playing because she really doesn't want you to understand any mental capacity to try and role play. And so one of the role plays I did play was there were two brothers and one of the brothers had inherited all the money from the father and the other brother hadn't gotten anything. And I was asked to come into the circle about 30 minutes into the session and she said, just come into the circle. And I felt drawn to play the role of, uh, well, I got drawn to play, uh, to go next to the younger brother who had inherited everything and stand next to him. And I started feeling absolutely exhausted. I couldn't keep my eyes open. And, and this is from sitting normally. And then all of a sudden being playing in that role, sitting, standing next to this younger brother, well, the guy was playing the younger brother. I felt absolutely uh, finished. I, I couldn't keep my eyes open. I was like, I need to fall asleep here. I don't know what's going on. And only afterwards did she tell me that I was playing the role of the inheritance and he has drained the inheritance. The inheritance are gone. And I had no idea. And so it's this, you know, each session takes about 45 minutes to an hour. It's a reassessment of communication. There's discussions between people. People share deep, deep things that are coming to them that are very much in line with what your mother feels or dad feels or whatever the case may be, you know? And so very, very powerful process and shifts energetically everybody that you're working with. And so really what you're doing is you're helping your whole family heal just by you doing the work there. So very, very powerful process. So good. I want to ask you something. What is happening there? How does that, what, what do you think happens in that scenario? You walk up there and you, you suddenly wicked, take that like... Mm. If you Wikipedia it, it's called um, uh, it's called quantum mysticism. And so I don't think anybody knows. And what did I say to you when I first started explaining it? It's still weird, even after you listen to it. It's like 
it's still I've weird. I've been in it's one like, as well. It's so weird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so weird. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and like, to the point where you, you're like, my mom was, my mom holds her hands in a very specific way. The person playing my mom, dude, was doing exactly what my mom did. I mean, nobody outside of my family knows what my mom like, I don't even, I'm not even aware of the way she holds her hands. You know what I mean? It's like not something I ever think about. And there's this woman standing exactly like my mom, having the facial expressions of my mom. Just unbelievable. Really unbelievable. Very powerful modality. I would say as powerful as ayahuasca and psychedelics, but without the getting sick and going through a whole process of ceremony. So as powerful as shifting. And that's why I've done like 40 different sessions because I've done, I've tried to, I've done like everything that was an issue in my life from my father to not being able to be in an intimate relationship because of the setup that I've had around me and just wanting to really have a life partner and like struggling with that in my life. I'm nearly 50 and I've been so successful in so many things, but when it comes to intimate relationships, I'm scared and, and, and fixing that and just like every single thing that you can think about, I've tried to work on hence 40 different sessions. There's so much magic there that we just don't have access to until we go into those spaces. It's so interesting. Talk me through, there's so much, bro, like this conversation can go in so many directions. I want to talk about your, yeah, let's go to your intimacy. What's, what's the fear there? Like, what does that story sound like in you? Um, I think it's, 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 it's not being able to access king energy. And, you know, when you access the king archetype, uh, you attract a queen. When you're stuck in a boy energy, you are attracting girls or I suppose like princesses or whatever you want to call them, not queens. And so I've been married and I've had long-term relationships and it gets really suffocating inside of them. And so I've done further research. I read a book called Attached, the Science of Adult Relationships. And I am an avoidant. And that's the role I have played my whole life is uh, avoiding intimacy in many different ways. But as the healing journey goes and as I'm evolving, elevating and aligning, I feel very ready now for bringing that sort of relationship into my world and into my life. And a very good friend of mine said something great to me the other day. He says, you know, we all mature at different things at different times of our lives. And it's absolutely okay that you're at this age and in this space that you're exploring this. Look at everything else you've done in your life. You've ticked all those boxes. This is the next phase. And I think being a better dad, a better husband, and a better beloved partner is time. And so I'm in that process now where I'm opening up to it, which I've, I really haven't been open to it for maybe a decade. Mm. It's so relevant. We have just released something called the King's Playbook. And yes. the embodying of specific archetypes is yes. really my work at the moment. And the King is the role that I've really wanted to activate and integrate into is that lover magician what have you got there that yes <laughs> the book i travel with i book i have King one book War. i travel with it i'm now reading it uh -huh. for the 12th time and i was telling my uh -huh. friend it's like i've never read it before it's like i'm like I what know. was that in there before like i've never even read that uh -huh. before anyway mm. it's the only book i travel with I've seen you reading that book before and like in your Instagram yes. stories and stuff like that, yes, but it's so strong. And yeah, really the embodiment, like the tool that we've created, this King's Playbook is actually to give your king a name, to actually crown your king and to give him a name and to start to write down the characteristics that you want to embody in this future version of yourself. And wow. that's why I've been so jazzed about having this conversation because your future becoming um, 
your new book, Becoming the Future You. Who do we become? Sorry, Who do we become? Who do we become? Yeah, and uh, your future self-academy, like all of these future versions of ourselves is really based on archetypal play. And um, yeah, I didn't realize that you were on that King journey and that you had recognized it to be such an important part of this this intimate um, search, like search for partnership. Big time, big time. And also magician, using my magic in in ways that aren't long-term serving, very strong and short-term serving. And so I've, I've actually... So my magician, um, yeah. using my magic for short-term fun and not long-term, uh-huh. you know, and, 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 and I've been so good at it. It's become, it's so natural for me to go into that space. And I've just been um, recently just like totally gone cold turkey, you know, with uh, just going through a process of cleaning up, you know, and just it's time to clean up, you know, no, no substances, no sugar, no, no playing around, not using my magic in the, in the playful way much more. And I want to, I want to move it up into the elegant space and then be playful. So it's, it's, it's a leveling up, you know, dive into that a little bit. What, like, what do you mean by short term? So I, I, I think I get what you're saying, but when you say you use magic for short term stuff, instead of long-term play, you're talking specifically about the, the yes. young wizard, the, the one that recognizes yes. specifically yes. that I can create magic, yeah, I can exactly. manifest stuff, but it's not the, the Look, long-term view. You've got, you got a lot of, like in my position, I've got like a following and I've got access to girls and I've got access to women and they also just want to get to spend some time with me and I've set up a life very specifically and I would even think subconsciously to not have the opportunity to have long-term relationships. And the women are very happy with that. They're almost like also happy with that scenario. So when I say short term, it's, it's these short term engagements that keep me safe from not stepping into my king. And so I'm able to use that young magic and avoid kingdom. And so really now it's a process of just, I'm just tired. I'm tired of the war within my head because of all the work I've done. I know there's a better option. And so now it's really stepping into that and actioning it. And Look, I'm meditating about three hours a day and it's really helping me elevate my energy to see new perspectives of myself. But I really love your King's Playbook and I'd love to chat to you after this podcast about that, actually. Yeah, awesome. I'd, I'd be happy to. Great. Dive into some of your uh, experiences around plant medicine. What have, you, what have you tried? What have you gained from it? What has been... Um, I've heard you on another podcast, uh, the Ridiculously Human podcast, Talk about your experience with ayahuasca, but I'd love for you to share with this audience what you gained from it. I taught you. Well, the mother. I, I mean, the mother, the mother, the mother, the mother. I have been drinking the mother with the mother. I have so much love for her. I speak about her as often as I can. Since 2011, I started my journey back then. So we're, what, 13 years in. But I did stop my journey with her two years ago. I... Uh, I realized I've reached my, my fill and I've done maybe 50 ceremonies and um, I'm onto other processes, but she has physically, emotionally, and spiritually uplifted me, cleansed me, healed me in so many powerful ways. And I think all people that have engaged with her will live lives and have clarity of lives pre-ayahuasca and post-ayahuasca. And you get access to behind the scenes of your life. And uh, everything from my daddy issues being healed by her to my healing my divorce through her, 
through her explaining to me what power is. And she explained to me uh, just before my first book came out, she said to me, look, we want to talk to you about power. And I meant, and I said, well, what do you mean? I don't understand. She said, well, you're about to come into your most powerful version of yourself. And there's two rules that you need to follow. I was like, okay. She says, the first rule is that you're a light being and you need to fix and heal all the leaks that leak out your light. These are addictions, ways of thinking, bad habits. The more of these addictions you can heal, the more light you will contain, the brighter you will become, the further you will see. And the second rule is the access to genius that you are going to get over you this next period of time is not for you. It is for you to share and be very clear that if you stop sharing, you'll stop getting access. Oh, wow. Fuck, I think I needed to hear that. Thank you. My pleasure. And so I share constantly. How many videos have I got? I've got three, 400 videos. I've got five books. I've written another co-author, another five. I just can't stop now. So I've opened up that channel and been totally open with the information, like 100% open and not held anything back from anybody because I'm very confident that I've got access to more and more and more and more and more and more. So she's really helped me along so many different scenarios. But I do think that my journey with her is done after 50 ceremonies and 12 years. Other teacher plant ceremonies, uh, San Pedro in Peru. I've done a couple there. Also incredibly powerful. I got learned many, many lessons. I've done the Otter Trail on San Pedro. I've done the Harikwaku Trail on San Pedro. I've done many hiking trips on San Pedro. So every morning, wake up, do a ceremony, drink San Pedro and hike all day. And uh, I've done a lot of those, and that's been really, really wonderful. Healed a lot of, lot of internal scenarios. And uh, microdosing, I microdose often now. I am a big fan of it. It makes me very open-hearted, very focused. Very... What are you microdosing? Mushrooms. Mushrooms uh, mixed with lion's mane and chaga, chaga and a bunch of other different things. And uh, that's it. That is my – I've done iboga once or twice, which is also very powerful. But right now, my, my focus is on uh, microdosing mushrooms and uh, meditating. Those are my two real tools that um, are seeing my elevation really gain a lot of momentum through this process. Can you share your microdosing strategy? Like, are you a couple of days on, a couple of days off for Three, yeah, every third periods? Day. Every okay. third day, I'm on. And then sometimes I just don't take them for a while. And then I'm like, okay, I want to start taking them again. And then sometimes, like... I don't have a very strict with anything, actually. Like, I really feel my way through. I, like, I get a pull for it. I'm like, okay, I definitely want to do that. I don't feel like it now. I don't need it. So I just, I go through with what it, whatever's around me. And, and you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza, look, I, I do a lot of work with Dr. Joe Dispenza, so I quote him a lot. But he always says, um, you get to a place where your consciousness starts to celebrate adventure and the unknown. And I feel very much like that is that, I don't have any rules. Like I don't have any expectations. I have no idea what's coming next. Like I'm just easygoing. I'm like on the go. I'm enjoying the process. And that's applicable to both mushrooms as well as my career, where I live, all these sort of things. So really be easy about the, the line that I'm living my life with at the moment is called, uh, is, says, uh, strong opinions held loosely. And so it's really about that very like chilled but yeah. ambitious and focused. What do you have strong opinions on at the moment? Elevating my energy as a major focus. Everything else takes care Elevate. of itself. Only elevating your energy. That is the most important thing for us to do, all of us. 
all of your problems, all of your issues, all of your challenges, all the things you haven't accomplished is all because your elevation, your energy is not being elevated enough. And who do we become? The book is all about this idea that most people are complaining about the changing world ahead of us. Very few people are elevating their energy to meet this future and what it needs from us. And so the title of the book is, Who Do We Become? How are you evolving, elevating, and aligning to what the future needs from you? How are you upgrading your software? And if you are, the future is exciting. And if you're not, the future is dreadful. Mm. So can you share some of your practices? That was going to be a question for later, but it seems like this is the place to, to bring it in. Clearly, meditation and microdosing, is that, is that a, your practice at the moment? for No sugar. No sugar. Okay. Um, no marijuana, no alcohol, and eating comfortably, whatever I want. I was very vegan. Um, I've kind of like tapped out. I'm like, I eat whatever I feel like eating now. I'm very clear about the foods that are good for me and not good for me but strictly no sugar, strictly uh, meditation twice a day. And in fact, if I'm going through a bit of a rough day, midway through the day, I'll do another 20 minutes just to tap back in and sort of like juice up that sort of alpha brainwave. And then microdose whenever I feel like it, you know, um, and spending a lot of time alone. You know, I'm, I'm a, I, I find myself um, doing a lot of walks. I walk 10, 15 kilometers a day, listening to music, listening to lectures, listening to podcasts. So really, that's my practice. Uh, very active, uh, very light, and um, look, I'm close to fifty, you know, and uh, really wanting to have an incredible, outstanding next fifty years of my life. So really working hard on that. So good. I want to sh- jump into your vegan, going back to eating normal now. What was that? Uh, how's that journey been? Because I've been on a, a similar journey, and I actually was going to ask you if you were still vegan. A lot of a lot of people have a eh? gee, you know, a lot of people that went the <laughs> vegan route have gone back. And a couple of things happened for me. One, I became vegan because of my relationship with Superdog, with Haiki uh, Superdog Sane, and mm-hmm. I went totally vegan. I just loved them so much. I didn't want to hurt any animal at all in any way. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very strict for a very long time. And um, I was with my dad. And my whole family went vegan after watching Earthlings. Well, I mean, I only got to 23 minutes of Earthlings. I couldn't get past it. I was sobbing myself in my lounge. In fact, now I even feel emotional about it now. But I was sitting with my dad and he was fading. He was, he was dying in front of my eyes. And my stepdad. This is your real dad. And, oh, sorry, my stepdad, yeah. my stepdad. Yeah. And my mom said to him, like, it was bad. You know, he was, his jaw was shaking. He just wasn't in a good place at all. And he was deteriorating in front of our eyes. This was over COVID because I was on the farm with my parents over COVID and the lockdowns. And my mom said, look, I've got a bit of kudu that I've frozen in the freezer. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to make you some kudu. And so she did that. And within 12 hours, my dad was a different man. And it just got me to realize that. You know, some people definitely need meat. That's just the way it is. Like, as much as we don't want to hurt, like, we, no one, I don't want to hurt anybody and anything at any time. But sometimes, you know, there's also, there's also reasons that these animals are around, right? Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing that happens is I was speaking to a friend of mine in Paris, and she's vegan, and I sent her the video of Anna Breitenbach. Do you know Anna Breitenbach, the interspecies communicator, the animal communicator? So, no, I'll amazing check out. lady. I highly recommend you check her out. The video on YouTube that has been seen make know, 20 million times is called um, When Diablo Became Spirit by Anna Brady. When Diablo Became Spirit. Yeah, cool. When Diablo Becomes Spirit. 
And so I sent her the video and it's about this animal communicator speaking to animals and healing the animal and the people. And it's a, look, I've watched that thing a hundred times. I cry every single time because of the level of intelligence and depth of, of animals, emotional awareness that we really just don't have access to because we don't speak their language. And so I sent it to her and she came back to me and she said, oh my God, that's so beautiful. I wonder if Anna is vegan. And I was like, oh my God, that's such a good question. I've never actually even thought of that. I went onto Anna's website. I looked it up. She eats meat. So that was the second thing. Then the third thing I heard through a channel. And the channel was talking about the fact that animals actually in the, the, in the farms and in the wild have hive mind. They're not individual. They work in hives. And just like birds all move and fly in the same way, herds are also the same. They're not individual in their way. Animal spirits only become individual when they hang around humans. But out there, they're in hive mind. And so there was a couple things that went on. And, and to be honest with you, the whole time I was vegan, I craved meat and chicken all the time. I just denied it. And so now whenever I feel like it, I have some. I thank the animal every single time for it. I'm very conscientious about how I go about doing it. And sometimes I feel sick that I'm doing it and I don't do it. And then other times I'm like, okay, I feel like it again. So it's a relationship. It's an ongoing process for me, but I've alleviated the the level of sort of strictness that I used to have on myself. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I'm looking forward to checking out uh, that video. Yeah, my journey has been somewhat similar. I My path into to being a vegan was initially through the woman that I fell in love with who was vegan and um, started down that journey as an experiment and also watched all the documentaries and punished everybody else with it and I was a complete asshole of like the Nazi vegan you know like just I'm sort of embarrassed about that version of myself yeah. but at the same time also recognized that I did actually yeah I wanted to eat meat and my I'm at the process now where in my community I'm actually making biltong from organic buffalo that I'm getting from a farmer that I know and the way that I've come into resonance in myself is really recognizing that there is there should be sacredness for everything that we consume, whether it's a lettuce leaf or mm. a, an animal or anything like that. When we get reconnected to our food, in fact, connection to everything that we consume, water, food, uh, information, social media, all this stuff, exactly, yes, all the stuff yes, that we consume, yes. when we bring sacredness to it, it brings sacredness back into the experience. Absolutely. And that's really where I've got to, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well said. Exactly. Thank you for that. Well and, said. Yeah. And the other one that I shared, which was kind of similar, that hive mind piece was, I heard somebody, I think it was on YouTube, sharing um, they were um, of Indian descent, like um, American Indian descent, talking about sitting up on a hill and watching birds circling around and basically recognizing that the bird of prey that was going to catch the fish in the, in the lake was mm. almost mesmerizing the, the fish in order to come into alignment. But what they noticed mm. after observing more and more and more continually sitting on the same hill was actually it was the fish that started to mesmerize the bird and it jumped out the water when the when the bird came down wow. almost as a way to gift itself wow. back into the yeah wow. as it's like we have the idea that we're continually fighting to survive but there's a part of the the experience of the nature that wow. recognizes that we are it's just the, the flow of what it is and when i heard that i was like wow wow just, yeah super that's strong. way beyond my ever i've never thought of that but yes wow i mean Neither wow. did I. And when I heard that, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's super, super beautiful. Yeah, really is. Really is. Okay, let's talk about some work stuff. You are South Africa's first Singularity faculty member. What is Singularity? 
You know, uh, Singularity University sits on the same campus as NASA in between Facebook and Google and was started by two gentlemen called Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil. Peter Diamandis has now gone on to become a huge entrepreneur, New York Times bestseller, and Ray Kurzweil heads up one of Google's AI programs. And so very, very smart guys, and they set up this university because they realized that every other university teaches you based on the past and, and sort of based on case studies, and they wanted to create a university that only focuses on the future. It's a very exciting brand, and I really, I, I was so enthralled by them being being part of the futures community. They were really the the the, the bee's knees for a while, you know. From 2016, like 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, they were just top of the pops. There was nobody better, and um, I decided to try and get into an executive program. And uh, after lots of juggling, jiggling, juggling, I got in. You know, they have like thousands of people applying, only a hundred people accepted. And so I'm like, really, who's who in the zoo? Like the, the CEO of Gucci, the CEO of Accenture, the CEO of like, I don't know, Walmart. And those are all, all these CEOs were there. And so back then it was just this amazing group of people. And so I got myself in and um, about three months before I went, I went to the first Singularity Summit in South Africa and I was sitting there I was so excited to watch the speakers, to come and share. And after the third speaker, I realized that I was expecting the speakers to arrive with harps and angels, but they were good, but they weren't like, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. I thought like thunder and lightning was going to come down as well. <laughs> they, were they weren't like unbelievable. So I realized uh -huh. that maybe there's an opportunity for me to be part of them. So I took my phone out and I emailed my PA. Lynn, her name then was Louise. I said, Louise, please, can you get hold of Singularity University, tell them I'm coming, send them my stuff and tell them that I'd like to do an interview. You know, I just took a chance. And so they agreed to do an interview with me. They checked my stuff out. They said, yo, John's aligned with us. I'd already written my first book. And so what happened is we, we, we were going and I was supposed to be there on a Saturday, starting on a Sunday night and then a Monday really getting going for five days. It cost me $15,000 just for the five days. So not a cheap exercise. Um, really expensive back then. And um, what happened was I got booked for an Autodesk event in, in, uh, in Cape Town. And that was Friday morning, which meant that I was only going to now land in San Francisco Sunday morning and I couldn't deal with my jet lag. So I um, did the Autodesk event. It went really well, got onto a plane, arrived in San Francisco Sunday night. We get greeted by a guy called Jonathan Knowles. I have no idea who he is. He greets everybody that's there. We meet all the other people that are doing the course. We're very excited. I'm super jet lagged. And uh, he says, look, tomorrow morning, the buses will come at half past eight to pick you all up. And you'll be driving. It's a 20-minute drive to the campus. And we'll do the whole day there. And then we'll bring you back at five. So, okay, everybody's ready. He says, but as a bonus, tomorrow morning at six o'clock, I will come and take whoever wants to come with to the donut shop that Steve Jobs and I used to sit at and design products. He worked with Steve Jobs for 16 years at Apple. Wow. So bro, I'm like, what? Uh, this is unbelievable. I'm definitely going to go do that. <laughs> so we were, we were surrounded by Apple, Apple store uh, offices everywhere. Infinity Loop was just around the corner from the hotel. We were in Cupertino. So there I am, six o'clock in the morning. Only 20 people rocked up because I suppose everybody was jet lagged. And I am asking 2001 questions. I'm so excited. We're sitting at the same donut shop Steve Jobs has sat at. I mean, this is just unbelievable for me. So asking all mm -hmm. these questions, asking all these questions. On the way back to the hotel, I make a video 
And I'm like, you won't believe what's just happened. Blah, blah, blah. I say, Jonathan Knowles, please say hi to my friends in South Africa. He comes onto the camera. He says, hi, South Africa. We can't wait to come and see you again. Blah, 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 blah. And we leave it. 20 minutes later, I get a message from Autodesk. They're like, what are you doing with JK? I'm like, who's JK? They're like, Jonathan Knowles. He's one of our fellows. I'm like, oh, wow. That's amazing. I had no idea. He's like, please tell JK we send our love. And so like, okay, so the next, I go to university, that campus that day, I go to Jonathan. I'm like, Jonathan, uh, Sarah and whatever, whoever they were, I can't remember their names. Uh, They send their love. He's like, you know them from Autodesk? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I just did an event with them. They're like, oh, that's amazing. Please send them my love. I can't, I can't wait to see them again. I'm so involved with Autodesk. Okay, awesome, awesome, awesome. Monday night comes, he says like, look, tomorrow morning, I'm going to take the same walk, but this time I'm going to talk about the four years I worked at Obama as head of tech. I was like, what? You worked at Obama? <laughs> what is going on here? I was like, okay, I'm there again because I love Obama. So I, I'm six o'clock, uh-huh. I'm there. I'm asking 2,000 questions. End of, the, end of the morning, he says to me, are you John Sane? I'm like, yeah. He says, are you coming for an interview tomorrow? I was like, yeah, yeah. He says, why don't you come in the car with me? Don't go in the bus, come with me and we'll just have a chat on the way to campus. I'm like, yeah, sure. So we get in there, we're talking about all sorts of different things. You know, I'm always enthusiastic about these things. I'm always asking a hundred questions. And when we're getting off at the campus, I say to him, Jonathan, what do you do here at the, at the university? Like, I mean, you've got such great credentials. What do you do? He's like, no, I'm head of faculty. I choose who becomes faculty at Singularity University. <laughs> he says, I'll see you Done. at your interview tomorrow morning. I was like, fantastic. Thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow morning. I arrived there, no interview, just a certificate and a welcome letter saying, thank you so much. We look forward to working with you. And that's how I became the first Singularity faculty member. Wow. Amazing. So what is the Singularity University? It's it's a university that doesn't focus on learning from the past, but rather facing forward? Well, with all respect to Singularity, they've lost their way. So for me... You know, they're not what they used to be. They're not top of the pops anymore. There's other sort of brands that are doing much more exciting things. Peter and and Ray have also changed focus. They did it for four or five years. They've moved on to other things. XPRIZE came out of Singularity. A lot of amazing things came out of Singularity. It's still got a decent brand, but it's not as globally forth, like into into it as, as it used to be. Also remember, Gareth, Back five years ago, talking about building a 3D printer in the space station, talking about the genome process being decoded, talking about AI and crypto was all so fascinating and exciting. Today, it's common knowledge. Like, who doesn't know about these Mm -hmm. things? Everybody knows about them. And so the newness of what's coming has diminished around the world. If you think about it, Mm. everybody kind of knows what's coming. It's like, there's, we haven't had any movement on blockchain. You know, crypto has had its journey. We all understand it to a certain extent. AI is developing. So we understand that. The space chain's got its 3D printer now. So the jumps in technology were really exponential over the 2015 to 2018, 2019 period. And it's almost like simmered down in a certain way. You know, there are some amazing technologies happening, but those initial pushes have been pushed. And a lot of those people were part of the faculty. And so it was very exciting for very many years. But the brand itself has evolved. There's other people running it. There's other ideas to it. So it's got some exciting things, but it's not the behemoth it used to be. I'm still very proud to be associated with it, but we're not getting as much work that we used to. And so there's other things to be focused on. So it was great and it still is great, but just not like it used to be. 
So who's exciting in that space now? What are the brands that you see in that space at the moment? Or is it more personal brand? Like, how do you see that space now? Dubai and Museum of the okay. Future. And the reason is, is that the leadership in Dubai is all about evolving humanity. And everything that you hear from that leadership is we want to develop a new tonality for humanity evolving into the future. We don't have all the answers. Please come and help us so we can collaborate to building the future of humanity together. This is the tone of the country and definitely the tone of the Dubai city based on Al Maktoum, the Sheikh, and the Museum of the Future, which I've done some work with and I was just there for a three-day conference. The tonality is the upliftment of humanity. And so this is very exciting for me because we're setting the tone to come together to collaborate to find the answers. So for me right now, that is by far the most exciting space. But when you combine that with Dr. Joe Dispenza's work around upgrading your software, around the latent software that's been sitting inside our brains for millennia that we haven't accessed, he's now developed these processes, these meditations, these whole sort of ideation around it. Now you combine futures with high levels of meditation where you upgrade and elevate your software. Now you start creating an incredible symbiosis for human preparation for the future. And so for me, my niche is becoming more and more this level of consciousness that's required for the future. So I'm very enthralled with what Dubai is doing, but the angle I'm bringing is human software upgrade, which they're not focused on at the moment. So that's why I'm enjoying it so much because they're on the mission, but I'm seeing big holes that they're not seeing. And so I'm helping them with that. So what's your, what's your process for human software upgrades? Like, what does that look like? For the last 200 years, we have been trained into a analytical, logical, outcome-based thinking robots. We have been mm -hmm. all about fitting into a system that is required of us to create a production line that is efficient and has economies of scale at the heart of it. And for the last 200 mm -hmm. years, we've seen incredible success through this process. But what this process of being analytical, logical, and outcome-based, puts us into a high beta brainwave. Because a high beta brainwave says that we are analytical, logical, hyper-focused, and on edge. And because we've got deadlines and quarterly profits and this machine that's created is an efficiency machine, it's a profit-making machine. And in order for you to thrive in this machine, you need to think like a machine, which is continuously running in a process of getting to that deadline. Now, that has become the norm in the world to be in a high beta brainwave. In fact, people show off about being in a high beta brainwave. They say, I'm so busy, I can't touch sides. I never get to my to-do list done. I'm always late. I need wine, marijuana, and pharmaceuticals to calm me down because I just can't sleep. And all of these tonalities and the fact that the pharmaceutical world is at $1.7 trillion and growing exponentially shows us that this continuous need to be in a high beta brainwave is making us sick. It's adrenaline-fueled, running away from the tiger that's going to eat you, and you're hyper-zoned in and focused on one thing that you're trying to achieve. And you actually never achieve it, ever. That's the point of a high-beta brainwave. Now, the upgrade process is really about moving us from a high-beta to an alpha brain state. And in the alpha brain state, what you have is the ability to see the world broadly, imaginatively, in pictures, the critical voice in your head drops away. You always have enough time. You start to connect the dots that you never could see otherwise. And now you're starting to move into the future, not with anxiousness, but with excitement. Not with fear, but with calm elegance. 
And so now this is the upgrade that humans need to have because we can't fix the problems from the same place we created them. And we've created all the problems in the world based on a high beta brainwave. And so when I ask my audiences, who here doesn't meditate? I say, why? I can't meditate. And what they're trying to say to me indirectly is I'm addicted to the high beta brainwave. The stallion inside my brain won't let me relax because I'm so addicted to it. And so I always say to them, I said, you're a highly successful 45-year-old human. You can't even sit down for 10 seconds and close your eyes. How successful are you? Not really, mm-hmm. because you're still chasing some elusive goal. And so really, when you get into a state of alpha, things start coming to you. You don't have to chase anything. It's a much more elegant approach of software upgrades. So what I always say to my people is, my clients is, agricultural times required, physical quotient. Industrial, industrial era required, intelligence quotient. Quantum era requires emotional intelligence. Why? Because in the quantum era, there's no certainty. There's only uncertainty. So in order to be okay with uncertainty, you need to elevate your emotional consciousness so you can be adaptable. And the adaptability and agility or AQ requires high levels of EQ. And so to build your EQ, then you become very, very powerful in your way to deal with uncertainty. Because in the linear world of the Industrial Revolution with high levels of IQ, we are addicted to certainty. We don't have that luxury anymore. So good, bro. I've heard you um, give that keynote. I can't remember who it was for. I think it was Suits and Sneakers. And you you deep dived into this and it was uh, it's super good. And I want to tackle a couple of things that I, that I got from your book, Who Do We Become? How is corporate, global corporate, like receiving this stuff? How many, how is like, are people going, yeah, fuck, we need to do this? Or is, are people like, no, we keep doing it the old way? What are you experiencing as you take this new knowledge to people? Is there resistance to change? Over the last six months, the gates have floodingly opened. And you know why? Because everything they used to do doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. So they've been banging on the same drum. And the biggest theme at the Futurist Conference in Dubai was the lack of action after workshops. Lack I, of action after to, workshops, meaning? Yeah, so, so we want to evolve the company and people can't evolve. They don't elevate. They don't, they don't evolve because they're the same old people. And so they, they keep doing the same things. And so in order to understand the tool set around elevation, because nobody's ever understood this. And the, re- the way I explain it to these corporates is, Do you know when you come back from holiday and the first day when you come back to work, the first few hours, what do you feel like? So calm, that muppet at work doesn't bother you, that rubbish that you is on the floor, you don't care about it. Everything's so chilled. And then by the afternoon, you'll comment to your friends that you can't even remember being on holiday. And the reason is, is you've clicked back into high beta. And so don't you want to live in that alpha brainwave? Don't you see more? And you know when you're that alpha brainwave, what are you doing when you're on holiday? Making dozens and dozens of lists of the things that you should do when you get back home, the things that you've missed out on doing because you've been in high beta. You don't know you've been in high beta. And so that alpha state is when I explain it to them like that and then give them the tool sets of why you aren't able to move into alpha, people start to realize that no matter how successful you are, if you're anxious all the time, who cares? Are you not tired of being anxious? Or you're not tired of being addicted to pharmaceuticals and alcohol. Or you're not tired of having an affair, even though you're successful. Like all of these things really start to become the most important things. And so, yes, it's being received incredibly well. I'm starting to work with bigger and bigger clients at higher and higher levels because the clarity of the work is making sense to me more and more. 
and they are now struggling with not achieving what they need to achieve. And so it's starting to become a tipping point in many ways. Mm. And so for clarity, it's really a, a process of upgrading and evolving people within the organizations. It's not, it's not a business process decision. It's a people upgrade. Exactly. And the, the, one of my videos that's done the best across social media is like every time companies go through digital transformation, they fail. Why? Because the people haven't changed. You change the branding, you change the vision, the mission, the values, whatever you change. You've got the same the people on the coming wall. in. <laughs> Who cares? If you change yeah, the exactly. people, guess what? You don't even have to run a strategy session. They will figure it out themselves. It's, that's the maddest thing is that we think we have to create strategy session. You don't. You evolve the person. That person figures it out themselves. Because now they open in their consciousness. They can see broadly, calmly, elegantly, imaginatively, collaboratively. They will solve it. You don't have to do anything. But because we're not focused in on that and we, and we think mindfulness is some blah, blah, it's not. And now it's starting to become a lot more clear to them. Hmm. So I've... I had wanted to read your entire book uh, of who do we become before this interview, and I got through half of it. Um, perhaps you could give uh, a bit of a preface of what the book is about, and I'll ask a couple of questions that I had um, from the half of the first half of the book that I've read so far. What is who do we become? What's the premise of it, and why did you write it? Every transformation that we go through, no matter how small or how big, always has three phases. The road of becoming a hero in your own journey always goes through these certain phases. The pandemic portal has forced us into a new world, and now we have to grapple with this new world and not quite understand it. And so the book is broken down into three sections, anguish, abnormal, and adventure, the three phases of transformation. And so we are very much in the anguish and abnormal. And anguish because when you're forced to leave the shore of familiarity, when you're forced to leave your comfort zone, and when you're forced to leave your identity, it's a very sad process because everything you've worked on has become irrelevant. Everything that you've developed an identity about doesn't work anymore. The world has moved. And so most of the world right now are very angry. And the reason for that is they haven't processed sadness. And when, and when you don't process sadness, it becomes anger. It's shown up as anger. Caroline Leaf has got a great saying. She says, I sat with my grief long enough until she told me her name was, no, sorry, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her name was grief. And so it's this unprocessed mm. sadness because we as humans avoid sadness at all costs. Take a pharmaceutical, take a drug, take an alcohol, go for an exercise, have sex, watch porn, do whatever you can not to be sad. But the problem is if you don't actually become aware of the sadness, the anguish, you are not processing. And so it's important to become clear of that. So in the first third of the book, I share my own sadness around my own career that got taken out by the knees. You know, I was high flying and I went back to zero. I went down to zero bookings, living with my mom and dad, laughing at myself and crying at myself that at 44 years old, I was living with my mom and she was helping me change my bed sheets. It was just my own journey of, 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 of loneliness and, and, and sadness. The second mm -hmm. part of the book is about the strange, abnormal world we are entering. And in this new, strange wilderness, nothing makes sense. Nothing is it like it used to be. Nothing we once implicitly trusted can we trust anymore. Everything from education to the patriarchy to religion to economies to politics to everything is up for grabs. 
Nothing is like it used to be. And we are not who we need to be yet. We are still grappling with letting go of our identity and our comfort zones and developing the new skills, hopefully, to meet this future at what it needs from us. And so we are squarely, as a human society, between sad and strange, between anguish and abnormal. And so the first two parts of the book is, look, sadness is necessary. Feel it, be with it. And I give a lot of examples of when I was becoming much more aware of the importance of sadness. The second part is me breaking down the strange new world we're moving into. What's happening with education? What's happening with medical medication? What's happening with politics? What's happening with city-states? So I go through a whole process of all the latest research I've done around all the different touch points of our lives that are strange and will continue to become stranger. And even since writing the book, I mean, the fact that AI has now brought out DALI 2, GPT-3, um, it's just AI has just shot up exponentially over the last year since I writing that book. And I didn't even get to put that in the book because I finished writing it a year and a bit ago. And then the third part of the book is called The Adventure. And in it, I write an equation of what it looks like to be part of the adventure, to celebrate the unknown, to become okay with not knowing what the next step is. When you are so enthralled with the now, with your presence, with your ability to be curious, fascinated, and excited about what you're up to, it becomes irrelevant what the future is because the process is not about preparing for the future. It's about being so present in the moment that the future doesn't matter because you're so in your space, in your body, so clearly abundant about your approach that you're just excited about whatever's coming. It just doesn't matter what's coming. You're just so excited about it. And in that state of excitement and fascination, the world echoes that back to you. That's the thing, is that the world's echoing that presence back to you. There is nothing to be stressing about. There is no money issues, relationship issues, when you've healed them within yourself. And so trauma, curiosity, imagination, experimentation, and meditation make up the process of the adventure ahead. And upgrading our software requires all these emotional upgrades that we need to be doing. Hmm. So good. I think I've got to get to the adventure part. What, what, what came up for me when you were talking there was the, the analysis of caterpillar, chrysalis, butterfly. And it feels a little bit like the mushy chrysalis phase where we're all just goo and we don't know what's going to happen next. But yeah, trusting that there's going to be magic on the other side is preparing for the adventure. Well, you can only really be excited about the future when you've healed your past. Because subconsciously, like I said to you offline, all I did was online is that I expected all males, alpha males to be abusive because subconsciously I thought my dad was the figure of all alpha males. And while I was angry with him, I kept recreating that reality without mm. realizing. And so when I healed that process, now I have mentors and loving men around me that love me and I love them. They've taken me under their wings. I'm doing some incredible work with some incredible organizations in Dubai and globally with older men, which is so weird. And it's just become great to be in that space. Mm, love it. Have you got load shedding there? I think so. I wasn't expecting <laughs> it. But the, hotel, the hotel I'm at has got a generator. There we go. The there generator's go. back on. There we go. Happy days. <laughs> Happy days. All good. So I want to quickly dive into the couple of questions that I had from the book. And I'm going to read here. If upheaval of the past years is not enough, to change us, then I think the lessons from the pandemic have been lost on us. If it doesn't bring about better beings, better systems, and a better world, then it has been wasted on humankind. What do you think those lessons were? And do you think we've learned them? Like, what did we need to learn from this? A reassessment for what's important to you in life. 
if you didn't reassess what's important to your life, you haven't evolved. You, it was a waste on you. Your consciousness has stayed pre-pandemic. And for me, what became clear is to heal all the relationships in my life. That became paramount in my life because they're all reflection points of me, ultimately. And so by healing them, it's just a reflection point of my own healing. And so the biggest lesson for me is how have you redesigned your life to be more in line with your own energy? And you can see it. You know, a lot of people have gone through divorces and are going through divorces. A lot of businesses have closed. A lot of, a lot of that has happened. But if nothing has changed from your pre-pandemic life, it's been wasted on you. And that's okay. That's your journey. But what a waste that you didn't step up and you didn't shift. Hmm. Yeah. So the next one was, um, I had to discover within myself the facets that connect me with every other human being, the criminal, the corrupt politician, the adulterous husband, the negligent son. We must accept that we cannot see ourselves fully at any point and that we're inclined to suppress that in us, which we or society think of as bad, inappropriate or unacceptable. Talking a little bit to the shadow there, right? Like you're basically pointing at the fact that we all have some part of ourselves that we're not prepared to look at. What do you, what do you use practically to be able to prevent those buffaloes from coming into your life and making a mess in your in your inner world? So, um, two stories. Uh, the first one is going to Africa. Burn. I decided that I want to play a characteristic I'm not allowed to play in the real world. And I went as evil, John. <laughs> so I went ah. to Camden in London. I bought myself the evilest clothes I could. I'm never evil. And I thought, you know what? For five days, I'm going to be evil. So every day I wore evil clothes. I was evil. I was dark. I loved it. Fucking great. And check, maybe my voice changes. I'm not even trying to change my voice. Mm, and so I accepted yeah. that aspect of myself, you know? Um, it was great. I mean, I miss those clothes. I like, I love those clothes, wearing them. I just was never allowed. So role-playing those spaces in places that are acceptable of you playing them is the one thing I have done. And the second thing is, you like that? <laughs> okay, good. Oh, fuck, dude, it's so amazing. The, the fuck, I knew this conversation was going to be amazing. But it's, my thing about playing roles is I think yeah. that the more, the more roles that we can play within ourselves and hold them safely with love, the mm. more other people will start to trust us. Mm. But if you can't be the evil guy, you continually put that to the side and you can't be that person and it continually mm. doesn't come to a place. But if you, I, I talk about it as the inner marriage, like you're masculine and mm. feminine. I know a part of me that wasn't able to access my inner feminine, which meant that mm. I would try and dress nicely and do all of these things, but I was really suppressing the princess inside me that when I give her space, and I can be whoever the fuck I want to be if I choose to pierce my nose or grow my hair or whatever that is and be okay with that part, people are like, some people that knew me from the past are like, whoa, 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 something's different here. But when it's really integrated and anchored, it's like, it's so fucking calming to be around somebody who can be the dark baddie and still be good with themselves, you know? So I just, I love that analogy. It's so good. Uh, next burn, I'm going as a woman. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, I want to go and drag. Mm. and making peace with that you know uh, so so that's that kind of the role does that play. feel edgy very feels uncomfortable even saying it but i'm going fishnet stockings i know exactly what i'm going to be wearing as well so that that's one of my outfits for sure for sure um 
the other thing is I learned from uh, Gabor Mate, and he calls it self-compassionate, uh, compassionate self-inquiry. And he says that compassionate means to suffer with and be self-inquiry, inquire and, and curious about yourself and to sit with yourself and to sit with your younger self and to sit with your versions of yourself and have conversations with them. Just like you said to me, creating characteristics of the king that you want to play. It's exactly the same scenario for me, you know? So playing those roles, speaking to those roles, creating those roles and making peace with those roles is just an ongoing process. I by far have not, you know, there's many different roles I still have to deal with and I'm working through them. But you know what really helps is elevation and alignment because all of a sudden those roles are okay. You build natural empathy in an elevated energy. You don't have to make peace with them when you've elevated because you see them differently. You're more compassionate and empathetic to yourself and the rest of the world around them. So good. This is a tactical question that I got from your book, which I really loved. Um, in the book, you shared something that said, the failure condition was met for the Future Self Academy. I was watching mm. that project like from a distance, seeing what that was because of the, my interest in like the future state, like the, starting to embody the future version of myself, to walk like the healthiest, wealthiest, most integrated version of myself now and start to be that now. Mm. What is a, like a failure condition and what, how did you get there? Like that sounds like something I don't have, but I want to understand it a bit better. So what I've started to do is every time I start a project, I, with my partners, create a victory condition and a failure condition. And a victory condition is what does it look like when we're winning? For a couple of reasons, uh, to celebrate, to, to know that we've arrived at a certain stage of the business, of the project, whatever it may be. But most entrepreneurs don't set failure conditions. And failure conditions is when is it time to pull the plug? And so what we did with my partners, and I instituted it, I said, what is a victory condition? We described the victory condition, but we also described a failure condition. And the failure condition was we would have put 2 million Rand in, a million each, and we would have made no sales. And we reached a 2 million Rand cap, and we hadn't done a sale yet. And we decided, are we going to go raise money, or are we going to pull the plug? And we did two meetings with investors, potential investors, and both of them asked for some traction in the business that we hadn't gotten yet. And at the very same time, what had happened is that the world was going through COVID and we moved from a world of digital static education to live interactive education. So all of a sudden, all the digital stuff on YouTube, Udemy, and all those other platforms, people were not finishing those courses. People were not, even with the, how much they paid for them, the, the, the failure rate of people finishing courses was astronomical because nobody's holding you accountable. You don't have a community you're working with. You're by yourself listening to these lectures. You get bored of them. You move on. There's a million things on the go, right? And so we also started to realize that the world had moved to cohort learning communities of people holding each other responsible in a process of lectures, practice, and community. And Future Self Academy was totally a digital play. And the reason we created it was because I've always wanted to put my courses online and I could never put my courses online because the skill is so different to everything else that I've ever done. I just thought to myself, 
let me, let me put a business together to try and help other authors. And every other author wanted to do it. But we also thought that the network effect of other authors sharing the fact that their courses on our website would work. And none of them shared it. And that was strange to me. But that also, you know, they've got certain bandwidths. Why would they want to put their bandwidth into pushing a business that they're only making, I don't know, 30% of it or whatever the case was. I can't remember. So our failure condition was reached. And it was a tough discussion that my partners and I had. We had it. We pulled the plug. It was a learning curve. We stayed friends. And the business still goes. But we're not operating it or we don't even have the payment system in it anymore. We've got all that content. It was a great practice run, an expensive way to lose a couple million rand, but it is what it is. So good. I think I could definitely have benefited from having a few like failure conditions at some point at the beginning of projects. Like, yeah, because especially the beginning of a project, that startup energy is always so exciting. It's like we don't even look at potential failures. It's going to make millions and everyone's excited and we're whiteboarding and all the things. But uh, yeah, putting in a failure condition would be, would be huge. So are you taking any of that now? And Go ahead. Yes, I am. I am. I'm going to be taking it and putting it on my own website. And, you know, we're going to be handing it out to the speakers and letting them do what they want with it. And, you know, it was a learning curve. But I also think that, you know, the hardest thing about every tech business in the world is changing people's behavior. We all have got great business models. The UX is amazing. You know, everything's amazing. It's working great. It's such an obvious solution. And you can't change people's (laughs) behaviors. It just doesn't happen. And every time somebody yeah. comes to see me about a tech business, I'm like, if you have like $5 million to just change behavior, the app must probably cost you $500,000. The behavior change is going to cost you $500 million. Like, Think about you downloading an app and changing your behavior based on an app. When's the last time you did that? Like, I can't even we remember don't. because Uber, I'm done. I'm in. Instagram, I'm in. TikTok, I'm in. Like, no other app's going to come now. I don't have time for another app. I don't know what's another app going to do for me. I don't know. So right. millions and millions of apps, very, very few behavior changes that are happening. Hmm. Another thing that I heard in another podcast of yours recently was a concept called future memories. And yes. you, I think in the, the relation of the, in the podcast, you spoke about having to mourn future memories. Yes. What is a future memory and what is that? even mean memories don't have time attached to them we apply time to them in other words if something happened to you when you were eight years old and you're still thinking about it and feel it it didn't happen when you were eight it's happening right now because you're having the same emotion and if you ever gone through a breakup with anybody and you had plans to build a house together and have babies and you've broken up those memories were from the future and so now memories don't have time they are timeless and so if we can think about our memories in the future and create them the same way that we feel emotions from the past and put those emotions into the future, we now create future memories that we walk towards, work towards, and live towards. And so your future self is, is coaxing you on as loudly as he or she can. And by you creating future memories and spending time with them in them twice a day, you are reaching your future self just sooner, quicker, and faster. And so to develop the concept of future memories and get people to understand that if they feel that future memory like they do past memories, they create them quicker because your reality has got nothing to do with the stories that you keep telling yourself. I mean, your memories are stories that you keep telling yourself continuously. Those stories can change. Their narratives can change. And so instead of being a victim to your past, create future memories and move towards them. Now, what happened over COVID-19 
is that all of our future memories got canceled, postponed, and taken off the burner. Every single one of us, no matter what you were planning to do, from a birthday party to travels to starting a business to getting married, whatever it was, you got canceled. And so one of the workshops that I was doing as COVID started, one of the first parts of the workshop was, where are we in the five stages of mourning of future memories? Like, where are you? Are you anger, denial, bargaining, grief, or acceptance? And if you don't get yourself to acceptance, you aren't able to catalyze yourself into the next phase. And so most people were so sad that their future memories got taken away. They were so angry. They were bargaining that they were still going to come back. They were in grief that they hadn't happened. But many people were in acceptance. So I try to get people to understand memories in a different way, understand that the mourning process was exactly the same when it's past or future, let go of the future ideas and start creating new ones. Mm. So good. So tell us Thank what you're working on now. What's, uh, I know you're always creating like a beast. What's, uh, what's on the whiteboard at the moment for you? My new book is called Humantra or Human Transition. And it's about software upgrade. It's the biggest problem I see around the world at the moment. I have began, I, I start beginning, I've, I've already started writing, but I begin with my copyright. I work with a copywriter because I'm excellent at vomiting on a page. I'm not good at chiseling it. That's what I have a partner mm. with doing that for me. And so this is my sixth book and um, I feel good about it. I know exactly what I want to do with it. And uh, over the next sort of eight months or so, I'm writing that. I'm also developing tomorrow teams for a few organizations around the world where most organizations have innovation hubs, but they're not tomorrow teams. And tomorrow teams are very, very different. And so what I, I'm explaining to organizations is that the heart of your next phase of business must be built on economies of learning and not economies of scale. And economies of learning requires data and AI at the heart of your business model. And so I'm building these tomorrow teams for organizations and helping them le leaving their current business models, modifying and innovating them along the way incrementally, but then building these tomorrow teams so that they have these parallel businesses running next to their current businesses, preparing for the next five years or so where AI will be ubiquitously available. And many businesses right now are like force feeding AI onto their current business models. And the current business models of supply and demand and economies of scale are over because everything is commoditized. Everything is available to everybody. So you don't have a differentiator. You have to develop new ways to actually start servicing consumers. Plus, everything's becoming free. And most people look at me weird when I say that, but photos, music, entertainment, and education are already free. And so next will be communication, which is already free. Next will be transportation, which means cars won't have drivers, petrol. They'll have just a cell phone, like a, a very simple system that will be running on renewable energies. And we have fusion nuclear power plants that are two meters big, now starting to get made, where every home and household will have a fusion reaction inside their house that will power them forever. So you have this combination of technology and AI that's now affecting us, which means that we have to build new types of businesses. And so I help businesses build these tomorrow teams. So software upgrade for humans and tomorrow teams for businesses and the combination is what I'm pushing forward. So good. <laughs> a, few, a few months ago, I saw on social media, you shared something that I'd seen before, which was um, I've meditated every day for the last two months. I've given up sugar. I've been exercising, et cetera, et cetera. And you were like, I don't know who's that is, but I thought I would share it anyway, like sort of as a joke, you know? And um, I remember reading that and I was like, <laughs> He's the, he's the type of guy that's going to fucking be that guy that actually, that was a joke two years ago. Yeah, How's the journey yeah. with stopping eating sugar? How's that been? <clears throat> Can I tell you, Gareth, it is the most fun, fundamental shift I've had in my life. 
I, really? I had no idea who I was without sugar. I am a new person. My energy levels, wow. my body, my appetite, my just everything. Everything has changed. You know, I'm, I'm back in South Africa now for three days and I'm seeing people that I was with just three weeks ago before I went to Dubai and they're like, geez, dude, you've changed. What's wrong? Like, what's happening? You're looking great. Like, geez, you look great. Like everybody's saying the same thing. My energy levels have just risen. My creativity's risen. My, it's just unbelievable not having sugar. Like what? It was what were we all thinking? What was going on with our society that, you know, I was walking through the airport the other night and it's just rows of sugar chocolates, biscuits, rows of delicious poison. Delicious poison. Yeah. That's what I call it. And so really, it's, and, and, and this is the most phenomenal thing. My business has spiked. I'm actually going into my busiest ever, re, like time ever. And it's the level of focus I've got. And if you think about reality being an echo and a reflection point to our reality and take fatigue out, Take inflammation out, take energy levels and up them. What do you think is going to happen to your reality? <laughs> unexpectedly. Totally unexpected. So what are your vices? What are you what are you tussling at the moment? Where do you fall in your in your own way? Like what are your vices? The the magician. Uh-huh. The magician. The magician. Playing games. But I've been good for the last month. So I'm 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 good with that. More, actually, mm-hmm. actually more. Maybe six weeks, eight weeks now. Same time that I gave up sugar, I've also given up the magician playing um, those games. Um, but to be honest with you, when you get yourself into an alpha state and you're meditating for two, three hours a day, you don't have the vices fall away because those vices are linked to lower energy spaces. And if you think about it, sexuality, sugar, power, lacking of power, all these bottom chakra points that need energy. When you move your energy up with this continuous, so all of Joe Dispenza's meditations start with pulling life force out into your pineal gland. And this happens to me twice a day, eight times in the morning, eight times in the evening. So I'm actually sucking up all this energy up. So all the vices sit in the bottom energy centers and the top centers of creativity and feeding back to your system. So if I say to you, I mean, without sounding like a monk, I just don't have anything that is bothering me at the moment because I'm so focused on the energy of meditation, so focused on elevating that all those other things are falling away naturally without me even actually trying to deal with them. Oh, wow. Thank you, man. It's been so good hanging out. I think we could, we could riff here for ages and I still didn't get to half the questions I wanted to, but yeah, it feels like a good place to bring this to an end. And I want to say, yeah, firstly, thanks for the work that you're doing and for, you know, amongst your busyness, finding time to have this conversation. It, uh, it means a lot to me and to, to my audience. And yeah, it feels good for you to, it feels good to feel you, like just, uh, yeah, transmitting all the stuff that you're so passionate about. And um, yeah, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much, Gareth. Uh, really appreciate the platform. I'm always keen to speak to like-minded, energetic humans. I know what you're doing with your life and how you're elevating yourself and what value you're adding into the world. So I do turn out a fair number of podcasts, uh, but this one I was very keen on doing and thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it, bro. I'm looking forward to chatting to you again soon. Ciao. Thanks for checking out the show. If you want to develop more courage and level up your life, Join us at our premium monthly men's circle called the King's Circle. 
This monthly gathering connects men from all over the world who come together and share and support one another to live our most expansive lives. To be courageous means to speak from the heart, and the more you speak from the heart, the more courage you cultivate in your life. Grab your free ticket to the next event by going to calltocourage.live. I look forward to meeting you in person in our next circle.